to stay up here because I want you to have a visual of what I experienced a little over a year ago. I was speaking at this event uh, outside of Memphis, and there's a praise team that I've uh, some of the events I've done, they travel around the country. It's a praise team. I've done a few things with them, so I've gotten to know them fairly well. This is a song that I first heard from this praise team. I was not a part of. I don't do praise teams. But where I was speaking about three years ago, it's a song. Every time I've heard them, they sing this song. And in the song, towards the end, there's this part that, they, that we just sung it, that uh, when the night is holding on, God is holding on. And in that moment... Little over a year ago, I was at this place down in Houston. Come here. I'm, you don't have to sing. You're not doing a solo. But this one girl who's in this praise team, and every time I do an event with them, she's, she's demonstrative. She's full of passion and life. And when it comes to this part, like she steps up to the front of the stage and like, just give me like a little Simba, like Lion King, you know, like, like, I mean, and she's like seeing it with everything she has, like when the night is holding on, God is holding on. And you can feel like, like in her soul that this, this voice is coming over everybody declaring this. So I've heard her do this multiple times, but about a year ago, I was at an event where she came out to the stage and she was singing that part. And Micah, since you're her husband, come right over here. <laughs> and right over here, there's a guy standing, here, scoot back just a little bit, in the praise team, and, and it was her husband. And this guy had not sung with the praise team for about a year. And he stood there with a hand in his left pocket and a mic up the entire time. There time, time, like this. I mean, he was singing, but I mean, no emotion, nothing. And it came to this part of when the night is holding on, God is holding on. And what you saw is she turned with the mic, like in her right hand, you don't have your mic, and she grabbed her husband and she was shaking him while she was singing. And if you didn't know that they were married, you would have thought, does someone need to get security? Like, uh, <laughs> praise team assault. Like, I don't think you're supposed to do this. So she was shaking him. But those of us who knew who they were, we had lumps in our throats. Because a year before that, they had a child who died. It was a sudden illness. And the husband had not wanted to sing for over a year. The wife being on the praise team and singing was like therapy for her. It was part of her grief walk. And if anybody has walked this journey of grief, you know, one of the hardest things is you grieve differently than those you love. And that sometimes like people who are grieving, like they're grieving at a faster pace and they're clinging to joy maybe before the other one's clinging for joy. So for her, it was in praise and worship. She was coming to life and singing with so much passion. And for him, he was just in this place of where is God in all this? But they talked him into singing. So in that moment, she's grabbing him as if she's singing to him and to us. But when the night is holding on, God's holding on. And it was this moment of a reminder that even in the darkest times, the tomb is empty. The church comes together to remind us that, that hope is coming. Light is breaking in and darkness is not going to win. So do you guys want to stay up here for the whole sermon? Or y'all want to... <laughs> We'll let the praise team go sit down. So thank you guys so much. Kips, thanks, thank you for introducing that song to us uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago. Happy Super Bowl Sunday to everybody. Some of you may be like, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and that's awesome. Um, I was, two weeks ago, I was in Kansas City speaking at, a, at an event for a weekend, and they changed the Sunday format so that 
Hundreds of people could be in the lobby of an embassy suites where they pulled up YouTube TV and they watched the game together. And that night as I was preaching after the game, Kansas City Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years. We had this powerful time of praise. And I just said, like, maybe some of you need to make decisions for Christ or rededicate your lives to Jesus. And maybe there's someone here today who needs to be able to say that the same day the Chiefs made the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years is the day I'm giving, I'm giving my life to the Lord or rededicating my life. We baptize seven people that night in a lobby in embassy suites. Now, if the chiefs lost, I don't know if there would have been more or less baptisms. I don't know. But baptizing people in that embassy suites, this huge courtyard where there was a bar back over to the right. And for 30 minutes, we're baptizing people and we're singing praises. And you have people start coming out of their rooms. People in the bar who are looking over like what is happening over there. People who were drawn into this powerful time of praise. I want to welcome everyone here today. Those who are joining us live stream, we're so glad you're, you're with us and you're tuning in today. In Hebrews chapter 13, there's this reminder. And here's how, here's how it goes. Hebrews 13 verse 6 is that, hey, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can humans do to me? And if you had a confidence meter, like a confidence, like a, a confidence level from 1 to 10. I don't know with you, like Hebrews 13, 6 right now. I don't know like what confidence level you would be at when you make that statement. Like God is my helper. What can humans do to me? But the writer of Hebrews is drawing on language that happens throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms, like in Psalm 54, 4, where it says, Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. The first time you have helpers show up is actually in Genesis chapter 2. And it's when there's a God created a man, God created a male, and he needed a helper. So God created a woman to be a helper for the man. And, and there have been people who have like interpreted this and have used this like women are weaker than men because the woman is the helper. So women were just created to be helpers to men. And I know that even the way I said that sounds so negative. But that's been the way some cultures have thought about male and female for years. But then what throws all that off is that God is called a helper more than anyone else in the Old Testament. Where God is the one who is helping. God is the one who is stepping in to help. So what I want to do today, I want to talk about how God is our helper. And I want to try to place you in certain categories of what this could mean for you. And I want to give you a few places in the Bible for you to anchor yourself in and hold on to. And some of you need this right now in your life. And some of you may tuck this away. And 10, 15, 20 years from now, this is something you may, you may have to pull back out to remind yourself of what does it mean that God is my helper. Jesus quotes the Old Testament quite a bit. And he quotes a lot of different places in the Old Testament. But there are four books that Jesus quotes more than any other book. And here they are. This can be a test for you. You can go and quiz other people this week. And we'll start with a countdown. We'll start with four. The fourth most book that Jesus quotes in the Old Testament is Exodus. And Jesus quotes from Exodus about seven times. And when Jesus quotes from Exodus, a lot of times it's about the law. It's about the Ten Commandments. The third most book Jesus quotes from the Old Testament is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, uh, Jesus quotes from Isaiah around eight times. And there are times when Jesus quotes Isaiah as if to tell people or when he tells people, hey, you like have a dull mind. Like you can't see the things of God. You can't hear the things of God. But there are other times Jesus quotes Isaiah as a form of how God is reconciling the world to God, to, back to God. How uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah to sh show what his mission is, that the spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted. 
The second book Jesus quotes more in the Old Testament than anything else is the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy about 10 times. I've never had somebody tell me Deuteronomy is their favorite book in the Bible. But when it comes to Jesus talking to Satan when he's tempted in the wilderness or the desert, Deuteronomy is the only thing Jesus quotes. Jesus keeps going back to Deuteronomy to declare the love of God, what it means to honor God and the law of God. And does anyone want to guess the number one book that Jesus quotes more than anything else? Just yell it out. Psalms. Yeah, I'm, I think I heard someone say Jesus. Somewhere like, Jesus, of course. Psalms. He quotes Psalms more than anything else. Around 11 times Jesus quotes the Psalms. And there are times he quotes the Psalms when he's making points like how he's been betrayed by friends. But especially towards the end of his life, it's like Psalms is what Jesus was pressing back on. It's what he was leaning on. He kept going to the Psalms. In the Passion story, the last few days of Jesus' life, even all the way up to the cross, when Jesus is quoting the Bible, when he's quoting the Old Testament, he's quoting the Psalms. In the last few hours of Jesus' life before he died on a cross, he's quoting Psalm 22, he's quoting Psalm 31, he's quoting Psalm 69. And all three of those Psalms are Psalms about someone who is in need of help because they are suffering. And some people think Jesus is so easy for him to quote the Bible because he was fully God and like it was easy for him. But I, I don't know. I think Jesus was taught the Bible. I think he, he studied the word of God. He, he was a good Jew immersing himself in, into the word and he could just draw back from these places whenever he needed them in his life. In the last few hours of his life, he's leaning into the Psalms. These are songs he would have sung for years. So here's what I want to do. I want to help you understand, especially in the Psalms, what it means for God to be a helper. And to do this, I'm going to try to place you in one of three categories that maybe you find yourself in right now. And maybe someone in here will find yourself in two of the three categories. I don't think anybody's going to find them in, themselves in all three. But maybe just one of these can be a blessing for you today. And the first one is this. When it comes to God being a helper, it's a story to tell. And what I mean is this, that when it comes to God being a helper, the way we come at this is there was a time in my life when I was in, a, I was in great need. I was in a valley, I was in a pit, and God came to help me. This is a story to tell, and what I mean by that is it's celebratory. Some of the Psalms are celebrating that, hey, I was a complete mess, and let me tell you what God did in my life. Every staff meeting, when we get together with our staff once a week, we usually begin in prayer, and then the next thing I ask is, what are we going to celebrate about what God has done? It's a lot easier to be in a group and to say, what do we need to pray for, than it is to say, let's tell, like, how have you seen God work in your life over the last few days? So let me just walk you through a psalm of how this happens. In Psalm chapter 30, here's how it goes down. Verse 1, I will extol you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. Like this is, a, this is a celebratory psalm of I was down, but here, let me tell you what God did. God has already delivered. In verse four, sing the praises of the Lord, you as faithful people. Praise his holy name for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turn my mourning into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. 
Places like Psalm 30 today, these are like the best form of evangelism that we can that we could embrace in our culture today. Like people want to know, like, why are you following with Jesus today? Why are you clinging to God? And it's not that they want to be argued into the kingdom, but why does this story, why is this story greater than any other story? Living in the 21st century, the best story wins. And the story of something that makes a difference to us and in us of we're telling the deeds of God. Like I was in need, when I've been in need, when I have been in a pit, when I've been in a valley, when I've been in a desert, here's how God has helped me. Here's how God has delivered me. On Thursday, Agape Child and Family Services has a Devo. Over 100 staff come into a room and they ask, what can we do today to celebrate the deeds of God? And people will take turns and they'll stand up and they'll just tell the deeds of God of what's happening in a workplace or in their lives. And they're just celebrating what it is God has done. So number one is God has helped me and I have a story to tell. Number two is this. I'm in a mess and God has stepped into the mess to help me. And this is a statement that can be made with great confidence. Like I'm in a mess, but I know God is right here and though God hasn't bring this deliverance to fulfillment, I know God is among us and I know God is helping. God's doing something here. I believe in who God is and deliverance is happening. And let me give, let me give an example like this. <clears throat> you're driving in the car and you're going to a grocery store. Kroger, Aldi, Target, I don't know where you go. You're going to the grocery store. You pull into the parking lot. You park in your parking space. You turn the car off. And then you look at your phone because your phone was vibrating on the way there, but you don't text and drive because it's against the law. So once you part, you start looking at what the texts are and you go ahead and you flip through social media a little bit. And then you get out of the car, you go inside, you get your items, you pay for them, you come back out to the car. And as you get to your car, you reach in your pocket or you reach in your purse. And as you were in the car and you turn the car off and you were looking at your phone, you forgot that you set your keys down. You locked your keys in your car. How many of you, this is a scenario that's happened in your life? Just a show of hands. You can, you can, and I know it's harder today, and now you're out there thinking, uh, that's not how scenarios go today, all right? I'm the preacher. I get to tell this story the way I want to tell it, all right? So <clears throat> you're in a car. You lock your keys in your car. It's the only key for the car. So you call a locksmith. Locksmith shows up. Mr. and Mrs. Locksmith, they show up. And the moment their car comes close to yours, in your heart is... Like gratitude, like praise God, they are here. Even before they have unlocked your car to get your keys out and let you back in, just their presence showing up, you're like, oh, thank God, help us here. You have a flat tire, something happens to your car. Somebody comes to help and they pull up. When they get there, you're like, oh, thank God, praise God. Even before something's better, even before the tire is fixed, if your house is on fire, somebody's hurting and you have to call 911, the ambulance shows up, just the presence of them showing up, you're like, oh, thank God, help us here, even before something has happened. There are times you're in a mess, and maybe full deliverance hasn't happened, healing hasn't come, but just knowing, okay, I'm not in this alone, like God is here with me, can be enough to help you. Let me show you how this plays out in Psalm 31. It goes like this. Let's start in verse 3. Since you are my rock and my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. In verse 5, Jesus quotes this on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. It's Jesus' way of saying, I entrust my life to you. It's up to you what becomes of me. 
In verse 9, listen to this. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and body with grief. My life is consumed by anguish and my years by groaning. My strength fails because of my affliction and my bones grow weak. Verse 14, but I trust in you, Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from the hands of my enemies, from those who pursue me. Let your face shine on your servants. Save me in your unfailing love. Verse 19, how abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you, that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. And verse 23, love the Lord, all his faithful people. The Lord preserves those who are true to him, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. It's a model of prayer for those who are in need, that you are clinging to a God that you're trusting in and you believe God is on the move and God's not gonna leave you alone. There are examples of these people even in our church, like a Julie Sano, like a Leanne Ramsey, who have experienced times of physical pain, but you wouldn't even know it because they're so quick to say things like, God is good. Praise the Lord. There's smiles on their faces. They're choosing to live a life of joy, even though they're people in need. Number one is it's a story to tell. Number two is I'm in a mess. God has stepped into the mess to help me. And number three is this. I'm in a mess. And where in the world is God to help me? This is people who know the doctrine and know Bible. And they they know they're supposed to trust in God in times of need. But trusting is really hard. And maybe because there's been a time in your life when... You trusted in God to come through, and you just didn't feel like God came through for you. And it makes trusting God in the future harder. Maybe this is hard, because for 2,000 years, there have been people who just their mindset and how they go about prayer is that God came and God delivered Jesus from the grave, and then God kind of took his hands off, and one day God will come back to like set everything right. But as for right now, God isn't fully invested and fully involved in your life. And this is sometimes what plays out. Like, okay, you're driving in a car, you get a flat tire, you call a friend for help, and the friend says, I'm on my way. And in the year 2020, I'm on my way could mean a thousand different things. I'm on my way could mean I'm actually in my car and I'm coming to help whoever is in need. I'm on my way could mean I'm gonna finish the Netflix show I'm watching, and then I'm gonna take a shower, And then I'll get in my car and I know where you are. I know where I am. And there are two or three errands I need to run between me and you that I'm going to make. So on my way could mean hours. So let me show you how this plays out. In Psalm 88, it's one of the darkest psalms. Sometimes we think every psalm ends like with great hope and great praise. And not every psalm ends this way. In Psalm 88, it says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. In verse 8 of Psalm 88, you have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined, and I cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord. Every day, I spread out my hands to you. In verse 13, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? And here's how Psalm 88 ends. You have taken from me, friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. And that's how it ends. So why is Psalm 88 in the Bible? And sometimes we may think, 
Well, those of us who believe in Jesus, it cancels out Psalm 88, so you don't need it anymore. I think Psalm 88 describes where a lot of people are sometimes in their lives. I mean, there are times that we're going through things, and that's what we feel like. Darkness is my closest friend. I just do not see how deliverance is going to come in the midst of this. Now, here's the thing. If you go to the next image, I want to show these three again. Here's sometimes how we can think. We can think it takes a lot of faith to do number one, to tell a story of how God has helped you. And we can think it takes a lot of faith to do number two, to know that you're in need of a lot of help in your life. But you are clinging to God because you know salvation and deliverance and help is coming. But that three means that you don't have much faith. And what I want to argue today is number three takes just as much faith as number one and number two. To feel like you are at the end of your rope and darkness is your only friend. But we're pressing into it anyway. It doesn't make sense. I don't know if God's even near. All these questions about faith that may be there. But we're trusting in it anyway. In Psalm 22 verse 1. Jesus quotes this from the cross. And he says my God my God why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. And it's all he quotes. But often the way rabbis would teach then is that the words of a text. That in the tradition of the time, it was a way like saying what was the first line was a way of identifying what the rest of the passage would mean. So it's like today. I mean, you, you list uh, or you name the title of a song when you're thinking about how a chorus goes or how the rest of the song goes. In Psalm 22, the rest of Psalm 22, where Jesus begins praying and maybe singing in some way on the cross. In verse 3, it's yet you were enthroned as the Holy One. You were the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. It's like Psalm 22 is recounting all these things God has done. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. It's like a form of taunting. Let the Lord rescue him. Let them deliver him since he delights in them. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt. And my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Martin Luther said this a few hundred years ago. He said, there is a state in which hope despairs, yet despair hopes at the same time. I love this. He says, there is a state in which hope despairs, yet despair hopes at the same time. Like there's a place where your hope may feel like it's fading, but as it fades, what is fading is also hoping at the same time. And all that lives is the groaning that cannot be uttered where the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us. I want you to know this and believe this. This next slide is this. All emotions and expressions can become forms of prayer and praise. All of them. In Psalm 56, verse 8 and 9, this is beautiful passage, become one of my favorites. These two verses of like God bottles up the tears inside of me. And this bottle makes my enemies flee. And by this, I'm able to declare that God is for me. 
And it's not just that God took all the grief away. It's that God bottled it up. And through that, through somebody like holding the bottle, the enemies fleed. They fled. And God reminds people, man, I'm, I'm for you in this. Jesus connects with the afflicted. And I want you to believe this today. That faith includes holding the worst of life up to God in prayer and praise. Faith includes holding the worst of life up to God in prayer and praise. Faith includes holding the worst of life up to God in prayer and praise. And at the end of chapter 22 of Psalm, it's this. That even through all this like bones aching and a heart that is broken is I'll declare your name to my people. It's like I'm still going to walk in the church and I'm going to praise your name. You who fear the Lord, you praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. Faith includes holding the worst of life up to God in prayer and praise. Our questions, our doubts, things we're certain about, relationships that are bad, we're holding them up to God. Not, not pressing them down, holding them up in prayer and praise. Casey, if you'll go ahead and come join me. We want to have a little prayer time over you today. And as, if you'll grab that, that blue mic. <clears throat> um, a lot of times now when I, when I do fly, I leave on early flights, some, you know, the 6 a.m., 6.30 flights. It always sounds great when I book them, and I hate them the day of. But I get to the airport early, get on the plane, and I've started doing more aisle seats than window seats. But sometimes on the morning flights, you'll have a whole row to yourself. A lot of people don't want to fly on the super early morning flights. And sometimes, depending on where I'm flying throughout the U.S., I'm on a morning flight, and, and windows, sometimes windows will be open, and I can see out both windows. I can see out the window to my right, and I can see out the window to my left. And there are times where I'm flying when I look out the window to the right early in the morning, and it'll be completely dark. And then I'll just turn over to the left, and I'll look out a window, and you can see the light breaking in. And what we want to do right now in a prayer time is to help shift our gaze just a little bit. To see light breaking into darkness. To see hope breaking into our lives. So I know all of us in here are in need of God to help us. I get that. But what we want to ask right now specifically is that for those in the room who you would say right now in your life, the cry of your heart is that you are in need and you need to know God is there. Or you're in need and you don't know where God is. Will you just stand where you are? We're not bringing you to the front. You don't have to say anything from a microphone. Just those in the room that you cry of your heart today is, I am in need. I have a need. I'm a mess. I need God to help. We just stand where you are. And this could mean a lot of different things. Praise God for you. <clears throat> and if you're close by, will you just put a hand on the people who are standing as we pray?
God, we come to you right now. Beginning this prayer with gratitude that throughout the Bible there are these these reminders of we cry to you and we have a God who hears us. We cry out and we have a God who hears us. So just the fact that you are busy doing things all over the world, but right here in this room, in this space, you hear and you know. And for those who stood and for those who were sitting, knowing they probably should have stood or they know that there's a place in their life where they're in desperate need of help, we thank you, God, that you hear and you know, and we bring these to you right now. Lord, there are so many reasons that we look out the window of our life and we see darkness. We see darkness because, man, January sometimes just stinks and it's depression and it's dark and it seems like life is dark. Or maybe it's a broken relationship, a, a marriage or a friendship or a relationship with a parent that's just broken. You don't know. You don't know how it's going to get fixed. You don't see any light on the horizon. Or maybe it's a job that you're frustrated with and you've been passed over and passed over for a promotion and you just don't see how you can leave, but you don't see how you can stay. You feel stuck. Or maybe you've experienced a tragic loss and you hate the new normal and you don't know how you're going to make it work. You don't want the new normal, but you know to move forward, you've got to take another step and another step. And you're in this situation that you didn't ask for and you don't know where the light's going to come from. Maybe you're addicted to something or someone and you thought you could stop, but you can't. And now you just don't know what to do next. Or maybe someone you love has walked away from Jesus and you have never prayed harder for that person. In all of these situations, Lord, we're crying out, help. Just help. We don't know what to pray anymore. We don't see the light. Or maybe, maybe we're in a situation where, Lord, we kind of feel like we don't deserve your help at this point. Maybe we're in this situation because we got ourselves into it. And we feel like, Lord, I really, I don't even deserve it. God, help them hear that you're the God who gets in the pit with someone. That you hold their hand and you say, I love you. I love you. I know that you knew better, but we all make mistakes. And I'm a God of thousands of chances, not just one and shame on you. But again and again, we cannot outrun your love. We cannot, we will not. It's impossible. So Lord, when we look out that window and we see darkness, Lord, help us be the lifter of our heads. Turn our gaze to see the breaking of the light. And Lord, for those who are in the, the darkness and know, have been there, have lived long enough to know, Lord, you are going to come on the scene. You are literally on your way. And I trust you and I celebrate in advance. Lord, I praise God for that. Mm. And those who are in the pit who don't see the light, who think God has forgotten me, it feels like God has forgotten me, Lord. Help us remind them to stand in the gap and pray and remind them and remind you of what your word says, of what you have promised, the truth that we are loved, 
that we are seen, we are not forgotten, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are forgiven and chosen children of God. Lord, thank you that that is the truth. Even if we don't feel it, remind us. And somebody came today to this church building, this body, to be reminded that that is the truth and that we walk in it. And to just, Lord, I'm asking today for those standing that you would provide a tiny little glimmer of light, that you would show them and make it known that it is from you that this is light, that hope is coming. While it may be fragile, you are the author. You are personified hope, and I praise you that you will never, ever give up on us. Yes, Jesus. God, and we hold all this up to you today in a form of prayer and praise that this will always be a church where we don't hold emotions out at the door, but that all we are, we bring into this place reminding each other that we're on this journey. We're, we're in process of becoming everything it is you want us to be. We're asking great things in the lives of people today, and we pray this in the power of the one who has conquered the grave, who, in a, who is still dispensing hope all over, this, all over this planet. We pray this in the power of the name of Jesus and the whole church said, amen. amen. As people sit back down, Kip, can we just sing that one verse of I Need Thee Every Hour?